king of my heart be the wind inside my sails the anchor in the way oh he is my song hey let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins the echo of my days oh he is my Praise him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. How many believe that we serve a great God? Amen. Lord, you are a God that is great and greatly to be praised. Can we just lift our hands right now? And just right now, just tell the Lord, God, you are a great God. You are mighty in so many ways. You are excellent in everything. There is nothing too big for you, nothing too small for you. You are a God that loves us, that cares for us, that provides for us, that holds us, that protects us, that fights for us. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful. So much to be thankful for, oh God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. saw the other day and it said if 2020 was a song (laughs) just imagine if 2020 was a song for me if 2020 was a song it would be great are you Lord great are you Lord for all the things that you have done I'm so thankful for I'm thankful for life I'm thankful for salvation thankful for my family thankful for my church thankful for my job thankful for my friends Thankful for a car that runs. Thankful for a house that I can sleep in. I'm thankful today. There's so much for us to be thankful for. Great is the Lord. Amen. Amen.
to hear, open our minds to understand, more importantly, may we open our hearts to receive your word. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Turn to one next to you and say, I'm thankful for Jesus today. Amen.
His love story for all humanity. From creation, God made people and shared time with them in the garden as companions and children when sin entered the world. It brought death and brokenness and separation from such a close relationship with God. He continued to work, however, his covenant with humans. 
He worked his plan and promised a Messiah to make a way to restore relationship with humanity. This way is Jesus. And this relationship with God that brings us into a relationship with love, it is a reunion with love itself. John tells us that God is love. God personifies it. Love is his nature, and he has shown it to us by sending Jesus. When we come to Jesus, giving him our lives, we are restored to that love. We are fulfilled in love. We live in him, and he lives in us. We can count on God's love. It won't let us down. It fills us and fuels us. It calls us and enables us to love each other. Jesus at Christmas and all time calls us together into his loving presence and invites us to make room for everyone, whether we think they deserve to be there or not. As we rapidly approach Christmas Day, let's rediscover Christmas by rediscovering the overwhelming, all-encompassing, all-welcoming love of God. The Apostle Paul wrote about this love to the church in Ephesus. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. When hope and fear meet in Bethlehem, we can rediscover the matchless love of God. If you're glad for the love of God, let me hear your hands this morning. So glad for the love of God. A couple of things just to update you on. There'll be no activities here this Wednesday because we'll be doing our Christmas Eve services on Thursday. Is that right? Thursday of the days, right? So Thursday, we have three services will be happening. All three of those are full to capacity, COVID capacity, in other words, our social distance capacity. But we'll also be broadcasting online. The uh, last two services, which I believe are um, 4.30 and 6, I believe are the times. And uh, you can join us. If you weren't able to get in, you're certainly welcome to join us online. We don't want anyone to be left out. Please join us and be a part of what's happening. Well, we're in our last week of Advent. What a run it's been. Does anybody feel like I do? Like I'm still living in August, but I'm, I'm waiting for, I'm excited about 2022. <laughs> for it to come and get here, who knows what 21 will bring. I read, I read an article that said the most unneeded purchase any pastor made in January of 2020 was a planning calendar. <laughs> but Advent is a season for us to rejoice, to celebrate God's love to all of us. And I am so glad for the love of God that is available to all of mankind in spite of and sometimes because of the dysfunction of the world that we live in. 
Hope and fear meet at Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And when hope meets fear at Bethlehem, I'm telling you that Jesus always wins with all of the blessings that he brings to us. We looked at the angels who've appeared in this story and gave a message of hope to not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. We started with Zechariah and the angel said, don't be afraid because God answers prayer. How many believes that? believe that? God answers prayer. And then we looked at Joseph and the angel said, you don't have to be afraid because God has a plan. I'm glad that whatever we face, whatever we come in contact with, God has a plan. And then last week, we journeyed with Mary for a little while and understood that we don't have to be afraid because God provides answers. If your heart is right and you're in right relationship with him, he will provide answers. And this morning, we're going to listen to the voice of the angels to the shepherds when they say, you don't have to be afraid because God keeps promises. God keeps promises. I am so glad for that. When I was growing up, we, um, we, we worried about whether promises would be kept. I remember going up to see, we we're planning to go to see my grandparents over Christmas, and my mother said, don't talk about it, don't say anything about it, because you might jinx it and it might not happen. So promises that were made when I was growing up might or might not happen. And you learn to not count on anybody's word until the event took place. Anybody live where I lived? It was a frustrating place to be. When someone made a promise, it was simply an indication of what they desired, not what they were committed to do. But when God makes a promise, it's more than an expression of his desire. It's a commitment of what he will perform. God keeps promises and the angels want to make that clear. Now when we visit in Luke chapter 2 verses 8 to 20 the Bethlehem shepherds often it's asked why did God appear to the shepherds and there's a really an, a, an indefensible correlation that's made. God appeared, or the, God called the wise men, the rich and mighty, and he called the shepherds, the lowly and downtrodden. And we picture these shepherds too often in Christmas dramas and videos as country bumpkins that were dirty and smelly that no one wanted to be around. In fact, it usually would go something like this, that when the angels said, glory, hallelujah, these shepherds in the Christmas dramas rubbed their chins, and one of them says, you know, Festus, I expect we ought to go down there to the village and see if we can find this here pretty little baby. <laughs> That's not who they were. It's not who they were at all. These were not country bumpkin shepherds. It's important to understand who they were and why God appeared to them so you can understand the power of the declaration. Now that may have been true of normal shepherds. But in Bible times, sheep were not to be allowed tended near the cities. They were only allowed to be tended in the wilderness except for one category of sheep. One category of sheep had to be raised within five miles of Jerusalem. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? It's five miles. And these were the sheep that were being raised for the Paschal Lamb, that most holy day on the Jewish calendar. 
These were priests that were tending priestly shepherds that were tending the sheep for the temple sacrifices. They were actually, by most accounts, priests that were trained for raising sheep for the sacrifice. It was important that these lambs be unblemished. So while the shepherds are keeping watch over the top floor of the tower that oversaw it, they'd have shepherds up there, these priestly shepherds would gather together, bring in the pregnant sheep from the field to the tower's bottom floor where the sheep would give birth. And they would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. What were swaddling clothes? They were the cast-off clothes of the priestly shepherds. They were wrapped in priestly garments and laid in a feeding trough so that they would be protected from harm or injury. These lambs had to be perfect. They had to be more than one year old and without spot or blemish. They had to be bred and born in controlled conditions and inspected for birth defects before being raised in a specifically protected environment. According to Jewish regulations, any animal sacrificed at the temple had to be born within five miles of Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, at the time of Passover, they would sacrifice two 160,000 lambs would be offered at Passover. Some say, well, the story isn't true because lambs didn't give birth at that time of year in the December period time frame in the Middle East, but this was a special breed of sheep, an Awasi, who gave birth typically in December. So there on the hill surrounding Bethlehem was a large farming community dedicated to the specialized task of breeding a huge number of lambs for the Passover sacrifice. And the priestly shepherds referred to these lambs as the lambs of God. <laughs> if you didn't get a shiver, you need to meet Jesus. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, does that take on a new dimension? Laying in a feeding trough, the lambs of God. Specially called and trained to prepare the way of the Lord. So let's think about the angelic declaration to them. The angels tell them to not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. The great challenge or call was don't be afraid. I give you good news. They were priestly shepherds. They were tending the lambs of God in prophetic measure, aware of the purpose and the hope and the longing for the coming of the Messiah. What is it that those priestly shepherds would have understood when the angelic host says, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. It was the greatest love story of eternity. It was the hope of the nation of Israel and of all ages that the fulfillment of the Paschal Lambs of God was about to unfold before their eyes. And I'm telling you that the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem is the greatest love story ever told. And when hope and fear meet at Bethlehem, the love of God will prevail.
So I want to talk to you from this chapter about God's promises, how they related to the nation of Israel and how they relate to us today. And the first thing I'd suggest to you that we need to remind ourselves is that the promises of God are powerful. They're powerful. Think about this demonstration. To Zechariah, it was an angel. To Joseph, it was an angel. To Mary, it was an angel. But the Bible tells us a little bit more in this announcement. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This was a glorious, powerful, dynamic, overwhelming moment. Imagine, would you, that you're in the dark on the hillsides anywhere without light pollution. It can be really dark. Seeing the moon and the stars, that's it. And all of a sudden, as you're gathered around, the whole place lights up. Today, you would think extraterrestrials. They wouldn't even have that framework, something they'd never experienced before. Why would God use such drama why would he be so incredibly dynamic in this particular announcement? I am convinced it's because that's the nature of this promise. This is the fulfillment of the plan of the ages, and God's not going to let it pass in secret or in quiet or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. The glory of God, are you hearing me this morning? The glory of God lit up the hillsides of Bethlehem because the promise promises of God bring the glory of God to the nations of the world. This was a powerful promise from God. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Do you know there's only one other place that that phrase is used in the New Testament? Similarly used? It's in Luke chapter 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory <laughs> in the highest. The fulfilling of glory in the highest on the hillsides of Bethlehem is fulfilled when Jesus begins his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the Greek construction there is unique. It doesn't necessarily mean glory to give God the highest praise, but glory to God in the one who is the highest. It's glory to the highest one. It's glory to the creator of all things. It's glory to the great God of the universe. That declaration of the angels made on those hillsides is repeated as Jesus begins his journey toward Jerusalem. There's a powerful promise of a redeemer. God is emphasizing his ability to fulfill the promise. Remember what he said to Mary, not one word of God shall fail, not one word of God shall fail. And this is a promise that God is declaring that he will bring the past, that he has the authority and the power and the ability to make it all happen. And I'm telling you, think about what that means. It means that God the Son, who is eternally with the Father, is going to leave the throne room of God and do something that has never happened in human history. God 
the son is going to lay aside the exercise of his deity, wrap himself in clothes of flesh, live like a man on the earth, learn obedience to the things that he has suffered, something that angels don't understand in the underworld couldn't enter into as he does the most amazing, miraculous thing that could ever happen that God, the infinite God, would become a finite man. And I'm telling you that if God has the ability to do that, <laughs> there's nothing in your life he cannot do. Come on, somebody help me this morning. The promises of God are powerful. They are powerful. No force can interrupt or interfere with what God promises. The Bible tells us that he saves to the uttermost. No word from God will fail. What he has promised, he will perform. His word will not return to him void, but will accomplish the thing whereunto he sends it. And God has the ability to do and perform whatever he has promised. We serve a promise-answering God. We serve a promise-answering God. He doesn't make idle promises. I probably shouldn't tell this, but on my granddaughter, she was stuck at school this past week. She was going to have to stay there while her mother continued to work. There was no one to get her. And Crystal said, I have to work. And she was going to have to stay there a long time, 15 or 20 minutes longer than. <laughs> and she said, it's fine. I'll just call Poppy. <laughs> Problem was, I missed that call. Well, I got good news for you. I have a... I have a heavenly father who's never missed one of my calls. He's never had to call back. I've never gone to voicemail. I've never had to send him an email saying, did you get my call? And not only does he take my call, I'm going to call Abba Father because he can do whatever he declares. Somebody ought to be saying hallelujah right now. He is powerful and his promises are powerful and they're not to be taken lightly. The promises of God light up the hillsides of Judea just as they light up our lives in our world today. They're powerful. Second, the promises of God are personal. They're personal. <laughs> I'm getting, I might get saved before this is over. They're personal. I want you to note the use of personal pronouns in this discussion. Now, granted, I bring you great news, uh, good news of, great news of, whatever it is, good news of great joy that shall be to all people. To who? To all people. But what he doesn't say in verse 10 is I bring the nation's good news. He said, Barry, I bring you good news of great joy. Yeah. 
Pastor Larry, he said, I bring you. This is good news for the whole world. But Beth, he said, I bring you good news. Is there anybody in the house this morning? It's personal. I bring you shepherds on the hillside, priestly shepherds doing the work of God, tending the lambs of God. I bring you good news of great joy. It goes on to say, a savior has been born to the nations. Oh, a savior. Listen, are you, are you there on that hillside? Can you put yourself there for a moment? So the savior has been born to you. It says again, This will be a sign for all generations. No, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. And they praised God for what they had been told. So while, watch this, while the declaration is universal in time and space and, and, and people groups all over the world at all times, it is specifically addressed to a group of shepherds as the first ones who get to receive. Why? Because the promise of God is not just universal, it's personal. It's for you. It's for you. This promise that's being guarded over by the angelic host is for people. These universal promises were made personal. And here's what I want you to understand. The declared word of God doesn't help you until you own it. I grew up a little different than some people. I grew up being taught that this was a holy book. You didn't ever put books on top of this book. You didn't ever put it on the floor. You didn't ever drop it. It always on top and in a place of prominence. Now, hear me. I appreciate that I was taught the respect for the book, but this book is just dead empty pages. It's just a book. It is just a book. Until you make it personal. What is this grand story? Well, this grand story, why the lambs of God? Why the sacrifice? Because I read in the book of Genesis about a garden called Eden that God created for all of mankind. And they were only given one thing they could not do. And that was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they could not resist. And so Eve took of the fruit, gave to her husband. Fellowship with God was immediately broken as God says in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? And a great gulf was fixed between God and man in the moment that sin entered and sinful man could not dwell in God's presence.
presence. And from that moment, actually before that, God began a plan to bridge that gap, to bring us back into fellowship with the Father. And you couldn't do it by conscience. You couldn't do it by law. You couldn't do it by example. There had to be someone who could come and pay the price for the sins that you and I have committed. And not for the sins of the whole world, but for yours, for yours personally, that your sin would be covered. And God began this plan when God the Son came down from heaven, born as a baby, lived on planet Earth, and began to share the precepts of God in three and a half years as he traveled as an itinerant rabbi telling the good news of the kingdom and a new way to live and a new course of life that God was offering that would be the law written not on tables of stone but on fleshly tables of the heart. And because they were re- the world rejected him and cursed him and mocked him, they drug him before the kangaroo court and found him guilty and nailed him on an old cross as he died as a, as a common criminal. And they put him in the tomb, but the tomb could not hold him. Three days later, the stone rolled away. Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, came back to show himself alive and offers new life to everyone. That is the good news. But it doesn't do you any good until it's personal. And the tragedy of Advent as we remember that he came and that he's coming again would be that we would go through this season without ever making the promise of of good news to all nations, making that our promise. Because, hear me, the promise is to you. 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 It's not the nations corporately. It's all of us one by one by one. And I don't want to assume in this holiday season that everyone that's listening this morning or watching online has made a personal commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. But wouldn't on this fourth week of Advent, the candle of love, the story of love, wouldn't this be a great Sunday for you to settle it and take that distant story that you've heard and make it personal and say, today, I'm going to crown Jesus as Lord of my life. How do you do that? You simply have to admit that you need a Savior. You have to believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead and confess him as Lord. And if you'll admit your need, believe in your heart and confess him with your mouth, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is that simple to make a surrender of your life to Jesus Christ. So right now in the middle of the message, I'm not done preaching. Don't, don't worry. Don't put your shoes on. We're not done yet. But I want to pause right here and say, why wait till the end? Why not right now when the message is personal say, have you owned it? Have you made it personal? Is it your story, not the story of the nations or the story of Advent? Is it your story? So with heads bowed, please, right now, eyes closed, no one looking around, respecting your neighbor's privacy, do you own this personal promise? If you say, Pastor, I've never, I know the story, I've been in church, or I've never been in church, and I don't know the story, but I've never surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I've never done that. 
And this morning, I want to make that promise personal, whether you're online in the North Chapel here in the main auditorium. If that's you this morning with no one looking around, would you quickly just raise your hand so that I can pray for you and with you quickly. I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Yes, thank you. Someone else this morning. Yes, thank you. Anyone else this morning? I need Jesus. Yes, thank you. As my personal Lord and Savior. That's three that are making a response this morning. Anyone else? Quickly, I need Jesus. Thank you. That's four. Anyone else? I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior in my life. Anyone else? Quickly, quickly. This is your opportunity to make that promise personal. To make that promise personal. I'm going to ask everyone to pray with me. This prayer doesn't have any magic. It's simply a way of expressing in prayer what we've already talked about. And if you pray it and mean it, new life will come inside of you. Those of you who raised your hand, if you didn't raise your hand and you need it, pray it. He'll come in just the same. And I want everyone to pray it out loud for the encouragement of those who raise their hand with me. Repeat after me, please. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I have failed. In my relationship to you, I cannot redeem myself. This morning, I accept your sacrifice. I accept your payment for my sin. I believe that you died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. I believe that you rose from the dead so that I could have newness of life. And I receive you into my life as my personal Savior. And I promise to serve you every day for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Angels are rejoicing. There ought to be rejoicing here. Those of you that raised your hand, prayed that prayer, you're beginning on a new journey. We want to walk with you, stay plugged in, and we'll uh, do our best to help lead you on the journey, new life on the inside. But the reality is the promise is of no value till it becomes personal. The promise of God is powerful. <laughs> it redeems you from hell. The promise of God is personal. It's made for you. Now, to the rest of us, I just want you to know that God has a number of personal promises he wants to make to you. He's promised to bless you, not to harm you. If God be for us, who can be against us? And you can trust him. If you need something, go to him because he's the God who gives promises that he keeps. And you can trust him for it to come to pass. Do you need something from God? The love story has been told. Reach out to him. God, I need a word from you. And and he will grant it. And when he does, it will come to pass. Amen. Promises of God are for your life. He has a promise to meet your need, whatever it is that you need. The promises of God are powerful. The promises of God are personal. And the promises of God are proclamational. They're supposed to be told. Hello? Here's what happens when they say, after a great company, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels left them, went to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, watch this, let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened. That is a declaration of faith. They did not say, 
let us go to Bethlehem and see if this thing has really happened. That's doubt. That's unbelief. That's questioning the word of God. They didn't say, let us go check it out. They went with this confidence. He said it. I believe it. That settles it. Someone else said, if he said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. But in your life, can you accept it and believe it as settled? Let us go see this thing that has happened. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, (laughs) when they had seen him, what did they see? They saw an innocent little child wrapped in the claws of the priests, laying in a manger as the fulfillment of the lambs of God. They only had to see it. They only had to see it. And it was completely fulfilled in their hearts and minds. And immediately they began to share the story. I'm just going to say something here that you might not agree with, but you can fix it in your sermon. But I believe people who have seen him can't help but tell the story. And that people who haven't seen him, I mean, I'm sorry, people who aren't telling the story have never really seen him. Oh, no. No, if you're not telling the story to anybody and it isn't burning you like a fire, you've heard about him. You've read about him. You've listened to stories about him. But when you see him, I said, when you see him, when your eyes fasten on him. You see, evangelism, salvation isn't about agreeing with a doctrine. It's not about believing a story. I don't want you to join a church or believe something we teach. I want unredeemed people to meet someone. I want them to meet Jesus. And when they meet him, a miracle takes place. And I'm telling you, when you've seen him, him. You can't help but tell the story of what he has done and the fulfillment of the promise of God. You say, well, I, I, I just can't tell anybody about Jesus. Well, then you need to see him. Maybe you need to see him like John saw him. Hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like burnished brass. Maybe you need to see him like the thief on the cross looked and saw him hanging there and saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Maybe you need to see him like the shepherds saw him in the manger. I don't know. I just know that when you've seen him, he's altogether lovely. He's altogether captivating. He owns your emotions. You don't have to enter a program to teach you how to share the story. You You can't not tell the story once you've seen him with your own eyes. 
The amazing part says, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. Look, if these were dirty, unclean, country bumpkins, nobody's going to believe them. They had instant credibility. Why? Because I think their story might have gone like this. I am one of the priestly shepherds. We tend, we tend the lambs that are used in the paschal sacrifice, the Passover lamb. And you know what we do. You've heard the stories. When that baby is born, it is checked to make sure that that baby lamb has no defect and no flaw. And we wrap them in the garments of the priesthood so that they don't injure themselves. And we lay them in the feeding trough until they can be approved. And then they're especially raised. Gotta tell you what we just experienced. We were watching over those Passover sheep. We were watching over those Passover sheep and an angelic host appeared and said to us, we bring you good news of great joy and this shall be a sign to you. You will find a baby being treated like a Passover lamb wrapped in priestly garments laying in a manger. That is the savior of the world and we saw him. Because there is nothing more powerful and the testimony of someone who's not heard about him, but someone who has seen him. Someone who has seen him. They were amazed and they believed. The lambs of God. And do you think that maybe as Jesus grows and his ministry is launched, in the Jordan River being baptized by one named John the Baptist, that when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, every Israelite would know exactly what that meant. It's the Paschal Lamb that our hopes and dreams have rested on. The story needs to be proclaimed. And I'm not suggesting we need to sing this, this song, but I really believe that was what was in the heart of the writer when he wrote, go tell it. On the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that the Lamb of God has been born and sacrificed and raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Let's stand and let's praise that Lamb of God. Lift your hands right now, would you? And magnify Jesus. Magnify Jesus. Love him and give him praise. Grace, what have you done? 
murdered for me on the cross, accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. your personal promise to them. And Lord, we rejoice knowing that you have personal promises for all of us that you will keep, that we don't have to be afraid because you keep promises. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Everyone that loves him, let me hear your hands this morning. In Jesus' name.